0: Greetings and welcome back to Patriot to the Core podcast. Today we have author and veteran Will Bardenwerper, and I really was intrigued by his book called The Prisoner in His Palace. And it's about the uh, 12 Americans who kind of guarded him during his trial. And uh, it really goes into show, it shows two Saddams coexisting in one person. Uh, You have the defiant tyrant who uses torture and murder as tools. And a shrewd but contemplative prisoner who exhibits surprising affection and dignity, you know, in the face of looming death. So, in no way does this book uh, praise Saddam Hussein, um, but it because he he does not skip the fact of what a an evil man he was, really, and it's, and his sons as well. And uh, it's just it's a very interesting book. Uh, Will is also um, a great patriot. This is a guy who was working in midtown Manhattan when the attacks of 9-11 happened. He had a degree from Princeton, and he was working in finance, and so he ended up joining the Army. He quit his job right after the attacks, and then it took a little while to get into the military, but he ended up going Army, and he became an infantry officer. And so have a great talk with him about his career and then also about the book. So I think you'll enjoy learning some things about Saddam that you may not have known. All right, so, Will, I wanted to talk first of all about about you and your military career and why you joined the army, because it seems like I read that you know 9/11 had something to do with it, and I'm not sure now. I think you were working in finance, but would you just give us some background on what motivated you to to to, to fight the enemy?
1: Mm-hmm. Absolutely, uh, you're right. I uh, I was working in finance in Manhattan. Um, I had been living there for about three years when uh, September eleventh, two thousand and one rolled around. Um I was in midtown at the time. So we weren't in any uh immediate danger, but um, you know, I lived not too far from, from uh you know, downtown uh where the, the attack occurred and um and yeah, that really was the catalyst for me to step back and kinda think through what it was that I was doing in life and if there were opportunities for me to maybe uh uh, contribute a little more to, to, to our society. And, and at the time, I honestly didn't uh, even know it was going to be the military. Um, I did know that, that finance was not, uh, at the time, you know, something that I was going to probably find satisfying in the light of everything that happened, uh, but it, I wasn't sure if I was going to go in the direction of you know maybe law enforcement, the NYPD, the FBI, the CIA, the, the military. Um, so I quit my job about a week later. Uh, in retrospect, maybe a little prematurely because I didn't know what the next step was. I just had a very general idea. And, uh, the more I looked into it, the more I determined that, that the military was probably the way to go. And I kind of narrowed it down to the Marines and the army. And, uh, it turns out the army could have, uh, could take me a little more quickly. Um, and, uh, you know, rather than wait a year to join the Marines at, at the time I was unemployed because I had already quit my job. Uh, I decided, you know what, let's, let's do the army. Um, so I, uh. Went to the recruiting office, uh, signed up, and before I knew it, I was at basic training.
0: So when did you join?
1: So I, I, it was a while. I quit my job in you know a week after September 11th, and I didn't actually begin basic training for almost a year. Um, and that was just because it took me a little while to figure out what it was that I wanted to do. And then once I made that determination, it took the military, um, you know, like any bureaucracy, a while to, uh, you know, get me a slot and, and get me down there. So it was a little bit of a delay. I, I kind of made ends meet in the meantime, doing some work as a, uh, in a bar, doing some construction work, um, you know, just trying to, to make a little money, um, you know, to, to, to help me, uh, uh, you know, get through until, uh, until it became time to, to, to get down to basic training.
0: Okay. So I'm wondering now, like kind of, where were you at in your life? I guess you weren't married at that time.
1: No, I was, I was single. Um, I was, let's see, I would have been about 20, you know, six years old. Um, you know, I was a Princeton graduate living in Manhattan, working in finance, like a lot of other classmates from my school were doing at the time. Um, and I didn't dislike my job. I actually, you know, I, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed living in the city. I was content. Um, but I think what happened was those attacks kind of just opened up my eyes to, um, you know, I- events and issues that were more important than, uh, you know, messing around with Excel spreadsheets and, and trying to make a lot of money. It, it, it kind of just opened my eyes up to, to service, and it reminded me a little bit of. My grandparents and the greatest generation and the sacrifices that they had made uh for our country um and kind of just uh was the spark for me to, to 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 try to make the same kind of a decision
0: so how did this come about i mean when it happened did you immediately have that desire to do something or did it kind of come about over the next few days
1: Yeah, um, that's a that's a good question. No, it wasn't immediate. I mean, it wasn't like I I mean, like a lot of people. I'll never forget where I was at the time of the attacks. I was sitting in our office was a a trading floor kind of environment, you know, so lots of sort of cubicles all uh, near each other with with. Uh, TVs that were tuned into CNBC and the different financial channels. And, you know, like a lot of people, th- there was th- that first plane hit, and people thought, oh, you know, maybe it was just a small, you know, Cessna or something that got off path. And then, pretty much as soon as the second one hit, most people. Concluded, you know, something that this is an attack. This was planned. that's It's not a coincidence that two planes would have crashed. Um, but no, it wasn't instantaneous. Um, it wasn't like, oh my goodness, we've been attacked. I'm going to join the military tomorrow. I think it was more in the ensuing days, watching the response of the first responders, watching the policemen, watching the firemen who were down there working, you know, 24 seven in the rubble to, to try to recover, you know, as many people as they could. Um, you know there's a tremendous sense of, of patriotism. Um, and it sounds funny, you know uh, you know now because a lot of people have kind of gone back to their regular lives, and that that sense has diminished a little bit. But you know in those days and weeks in in uh, Manhattan following the attack, it was a very patriotic time. and um, you know, I was inspired by that and and I knew that that if I didn't make a decision quickly, it it would probably you know eventually evaporate. So I did want to make a decision sooner rather than later. Yeah
0: you know, speaking of the patriotism. Uh, one of my guests early on was um, Dan Hammond and he was on the, the first flight from Na- Nashville to JFK when they, when they uh. opened back up travel. And you know a few uh-huh. people were on the plane and he said that when he got to New York, he, you know people weren't on the streets. You know people weren't honking at, at each other. It was mm-hmm. everybody was more friendly and understanding. It was just a whole different feeling.
1: Yeah, it, it's it's remarkable, and it's it's hard to really explain it. Um, you know, unless you were there, it's it's hard to capture what that felt like. Um, uh, I don't know if you're too familiar with the author Sebastian Junger, who wrote the book Tribe, um, and he talks a little bit about um, you know what it is uh, that that makes people who were in the military in, in many instances you know miss their time serving. And he draws a little bit of an analogy to to 9 or to Manhattan post 9/11, and it's kind of just that sense of of uh, you know we're in this together, um, we're we're part of something larger than ourselves, and and um, and his argument is that there's at least a small part of everyone that kind of craves that, um, and and that's why oftentimes or a surprising amount of the time, people look back on moments of crisis. With a little bit of, of nostalgia because, because it's not every day in life that you you do feel that uh, that bond that bond with, with your neighbor, um, and it was definitely there in those in those days. I, you know I, I will never forget that
0: yeah, and I didn't realize you were a Princeton grad at this time. in fact, that was one of the questions I was going to ask you, so <laughs> it makes it even more i don't know it's just kind of uh, standing at stands out even more that you already had your college degree. Of course, from a well-known um, college, and then you uh, you have a good job. You know, things are probably going pretty well for you. And then you, you take a, a pay cut uh, to join the military and also to live a little more dangerous life. So, I mean, mm-hmm. when you decided the Army, they could take you, you know, what did you – did you have any, like, specific job you wanted to do in the Army?
1: Yeah, I, I – I, I... Decided that if, if I'm going to make this decision to serve, I'd like to push myself as hard as I, as I can and to kind of take myself out of, out of my natural comfort zone. And, you know, having, I took the opportunity to speak to as many current service members as I could to pick their brains and, and learn more about the Army and, and at the time the Marines I was researching as well. Um, and I talked to as many veterans as I could, and I just kind of asked them, listen, if I'm going to make this decision, there's a lot of different directions you can go within the military writ large. Um, you know, tell me a little bit about them. And, and through those discussions, uh, you know, a number of people I spoke to suggested that that if you're going to do the Army, you know, traditionally the infantry is kind of the, the the most challenging uh, uh uh, you know, specialty that you can have. It's kind of the core mission of the army at the end of the day to, to close with and kill the enemy. Um, and so I thought to myself, you know, if, if the whole point here is that I'm walking away from a desk job to serve my country and, and to do something different, I don't want to replace one desk job with with another desk job. Mm-hmm. So let's go as far in the other extreme as I can, uh, which is why I, I I chose the infantry as my first uh, um, you know branch choice. And luckily enough, I got it. And uh, you know, spent. Most of the next two years, you know, going through all of the different Army schools from basic training to officer candidate school to infantry training to ranger school, airborne school, Um, you know, so it was almost two years before I actually got to my first duty station.
0: Wow. So, So tell me how this works. This is probably a dumb question, but so you did go in as an officer, it sounds like
1: well it's yeah the army all the branches i think are a little different in that respect if you do the marines you you can go straight to officer candidate school and then become an officer the way the army does it or did it i think they still do it this way is you, you you sign a contract that guarantees you a spot at officer candidate school assuming you successfully graduate basic training but you have to go to basic training first um so you go to basic training uh you know with predominantly uh you know enlisted folks um but when the enlisted uh individuals graduate basic training they go on to the their you know learn their occupational specialty you just go straight to to ocs um so it just adds like one more step to the process
0: so you were one of the older guys i guess in basic training
1: oh yeah i mean Uh that that was something like you know i look back on it and and one of the hardest parts was just culturally because you're i was a good 10 years older than most of them and uh you know, they'd just be referring to music and movies. And, and I felt like I was back in high school, <laughs> um, you know, so, socially. And, uh, you know, so that was that part of it was as challenging as any of the, you know, the physical parts of it.
0: Yeah, I would think so. I mean, I know my brother was 26 when he enlisted and, uh-huh. and he was, you know, he, he had not. He had also he graduated college and he had lived away as a missionary. And so it was he was probably seemed older than the eight years that he was eight or nine years. He was at most of them, I guess.
1: Uh huh. Yep. So I'm sure he, he went through a lot of those same, those same experiences. So Um, what about
0: your, did, I'm I'm curious how many times you deployed and where you went and was it only, did you just go to the middle East?
1: Um, yeah. So, um, in the army I deployed only one time. It was about a 14 month deployment in 2006, uh, into 2007. Um, I began, I spent the first four or so months up in Tal Afar, um, in northern Iraq, which was pretty stable. Um, the current national security advisor, uh, at the time, Colonel McMaster, now, you know, he went on to become a general. He had actually just led a very successful operation cleaning out Tal Afar. So we were lucky enough to kind of inherit, uh, uh the security that, that his, uh, uh, battal- brigade had, had, uh, established. Um, about a third of the way through the deployment, though we were bounced down to anbar province um, uh saw battalions in uh Ramadi uh, my battalion a little to the west of Ramadi in a, in a city called uh pronounced heat but it's spelled hit h i t um, and that was the exact opposite um, that was extremely violent uh it was basically the most violent province in Iraq in the most violent year of the iraq war um so that was was uh you know a much more challenging uh, mission that that we had down there. So that was my only army deployment. Later as a civilian um, I spent some time in Africa uh, doing some counterterrorism work with the military, but that was that was separate.
0: Okay. Like like a contractor type?
1: No, yeah. I was a government civilian attached to some special operations forces that were doing counterterrorism work yeah. in Africa.
0: Well, was that how did the danger there compare to Iraq?
1: Uh, it, was, it was more stable um, in, in the area where we were. Um, Iraq was, was uniquely, um, I think, uh, you know, dangerous in my experience just because of the, the year that we were there and because of the, the, the place where we were. Um, I don't know. You may remember there was a marine intelligence report that somehow got leaked to the uh, Washington Post, and, and the, the thesis of the report was that Anbar province has been lost. Um, you know, there's no hope. Uh the people will never be receptive to us and the insurgents basically are on top and are gonna stay on top. And at the time I was there and I thought to myself, you know what, like this isn't far off. You know, I, I was very pessimistic about the the future there. Um and fortunately, you know, for the short term at least, I, I was wrong. Um we we were ultimately um pretty successful in, in a lot of ways. Um those gains, you know, of course in later years um uh, uh, eroded but but uh, in the short term um there was a lot more success than I ever would have imagined
0: yeah, so what was it like in 06 and 07 it seems like 05 was one of the really bad years in Iraq is that right
1: yeah 05 and 06 you know basically okay. those years immediately preceding the surge um and we were one of the last units there basically before the surge and i think i think that was when things there was really a sense that things were going in the wrong direction
0: so you were uh, an, an uh, what was it an infantry officer? Is that right? I
1: was. I was an infantry officer. My job uh, in HIT was what they call essentially it was civil affairs. Um, so we, I was responsible for helping manage my battalion's effort to. I mean, it, it sounds silly, but kind of do a little bit of everything to establish governments, governance to establish. Um, uh you know local security forces to to develop relationships with the local tribes to uh infrastructure work electricity water sanitation i mean basically everything that we associate with a functioning society had fallen into either disrepair or was just non-existent um and the theory was that you know if if that's the case we'll never succeed um in in you know uh Trying to you know improve uh, the quality of life here. So you know, in a sense, my friends and I would joke, you know, it was like Sim City. You know, you you, you assign a bunch of twenty-year-old infantry officers the, the the task of rebuilding a city of you know a hundred thousand people. Um, so it was it was not easy.
0: Well, what are some things that you learned when you were having to work with the local tribes? Uh, I'm I'm sure you probably figured out eventually you know maybe a, the most effective ways or more effective ways to to communicate and and maybe get them to you know win them to your side maybe
1: yeah i mean it 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 was a number of things um, and i don't take credit for this i mean there were a lot of guys smarter than i that that played a, a more major role in in that uh, transition um, you know, one of whom was actually a very good friend of mine who was killed in Ramadi, uh, Travis Patrick when. But so I, I credit guys like him for, for that change in philosophy. But I think, you know, to a large extent, it was about being honest. It was about saying, you know, the area where we were were, were they were never going to love the Americans. They were Sunni Arabs, um, you know, 98%. Um, they didn't look, a lot of them did not look to at Saddam Hussein as an enemy. They looked at, Saddam is one of their guys. And when we removed Saddam, they were afraid that we had just basically turned the country over to the Shia. Um, and, you know, to a large extent, you know, they've been proven right because the Shia now do dominate their government. So we tried to just be honest. We said, listen, we understand that you may not love the fact that we're here, but we are. Um, so let's work together to try to make this country as, you know, peaceful and secure and prosperous for you and for your families and for, your community as we can. So, you know, how do we go about doing that? Um, one way to do that is to recruit you to serve as the security forces because you have a much better idea than we do, um, you know, who belongs here and who doesn't, who has the best interest of your community at heart and who doesn't. Um, so it was an effort to, to um, you know, try to get on the same page. Um, you know, money was obviously part of it uh, to the extent that we could uh, focus reconstruction prog- projects uh, strategically, you know, toward their, toward their communities that helped to convince them that, that, that we were, uh, you know, sincere in in our hopes to, to help them. Uh, so it was a whole confluence of, of different factors. Um, and, uh, and it wasn't overnight, but, but ultimately, um, we did have a good deal of success doing that.
0: Did they ever, did the locals ever do anything, you know, to you and your team that would cause you to not trust them? Or to you know to always keep one eye open,
1: yeah, I mean that for better or worse, that's kind of just the way things are uh in that part of the world um uh and I don't blame them necessarily, I mean, we're there temporarily they're they ultimately are the ones that are going to be living there for the rest of their lives um and so um you know they have to be cognizant of that when they're making their decisions, but you know, I'll never forget one episode where you know I was kind of young and idealistic and I, I um, had asked my brother back home in high school to raise some money to buy school supplies and to buy soccer equipment and athletic equipment that we could distribute to some of the local schools in an effort to establish goodwill and we did that we spent the day going around uh, to different places and, and distributing the stuff the kids loved it the teachers loved it Um, And then on the way home or on the way back to our uh, camp, we got hit by an IED. Um, Fortunately, no one was, was killed or injured. I think it just blew a tire out or, you know, exploded between two vehicles. But I remember thinking to myself, you know, this doesn't make a whole lot of sense. You know, here I am going out. We're going out of our way to raise additional money, you know, not even government money, but just personal charity to do you know? Do the right thing. We're, we're help. We're trying to help this community, and, and here's people from that community trying to kill us. <laughs> so yeah. no, I mean there were definitely moments where where you kind of stepped back and thought to yourself, you know, what what exactly are we doing over here again? You know, this isn't really a great way to show gratitude. Uh,
0: any ever a time in your training or while you were in the in the army at all, where you regretted or questioned your decision to do it?
1: No, not seriously. I mean, there were moments I'm sure where I was. Crawling through mud at Ranger School, or you know, hungry or tired, where I imagined the life that I had once had, <laughs> comfortably <laughs> living in Manhattan, with you know, going out to nice bars and restaurants. Um, so, of course, there were moments where where I you know, I'd, I'd be like, wait a second, you know, how did I get myself into this mess? But 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 seriously, no, I I was proud to be doing what I was doing. I, I enjoyed doing what I was doing, even though it was tough. Um, you know, there were moments where I, I questioned if the mission was ever going to succeed or not, but I never questioned the decision to, to 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 serve. Yeah,
0: I mean, I you know, big props to you for what you did because you absolutely didn't have to. I mean, you left comfort.
1: Yeah, I mean, I I, I did put you know a fair amount on the line, so I certainly didn't want to you know get down there and have something go wrong, and then. You know, I was pretty far out on a limb. So I guess to that extent, there was some pressure. But I mean, it was also tough just because I was—you know—I'd grown up in the suburbs. Um, I was always a pretty good athlete. I was always fit, and I was always very competitive. But I had never been hunting in my life. I'd never been camping in my life. I'd never fired a weapon. I'd never set up a tent. <laughs> you know, so you think about <laughs> a lot of the the, the skills that come—you know—much more naturally to people from different backgrounds. A lot of that stuff was foreign to me and was, was challenging. Um, so it wasn't easy, but, but you know, I just kept reminding myself, you know what, just don't quit. Uh, put one foot in front of the other and, you know, things will fall into place.
0: Yeah. So the, so your time was up and you came home. How did you feel about your deployment? Uh, you know, did you feel like you made some progress or what was the feeling?
1: The, the feeling, honestly, the feeling in the immediate aftermath of the deployment was, was pretty uh, uh, I don't want to say de- it wasn't depressing, but it, it was subdued because we we experienced a lot of casualties. You know, I, I would I think somewhere it sounds almost hard to believe, but somewhere in the neighborhood of you know over 150 wounded out of a 700 person battalion. Um, you know, that's a, that's a lot. Um, and at the time when we left, it was still pretty dangerous. We it hadn't turned, um, and it's it's kind of amazing because I remember distinctly emailing uh, my former Iraqi interpreter who stayed there with the next unit and, um, and this was only like two months after we, we got back to Germany and I emailed him and I just said you know how's it going what, what's it like over there and he said you're not going to believe it but you know there are areas where you know we would have to shoot smoke grenades and, and run because of the sniper threat and the small arms threat um where now you could take off your body armor sit down on the sidewalk and eat a kebab you know that's how secure it is so it was almost night and day um we we certainly contributed to that turnaround, but we did we weren't unfortunately there to witness it actually take place
0: mm-hmm. well yeah i guess you had a sense of accomplishment that at least yeah. at least for some period of time y'all you made good progress and
1: and, and, yeah. So we got, we had that sense, but it wasn't immediate. It wasn't until we had gotten back for a few months and and learned that things had changed. Um, and so that was, that was definitely gratifying.
0: Well, given what I know about you now and you, you've written a book and, or at least
1: one, have you written more than one book? One book. I'm hoping to start a second one, but just one so far.
0: Okay. So before we get into that, and I know you've done some writing for, or at least it's been picked up by the Washington post and several Uh big, big, um, I guess, you know, organizations. I mean, did you keep detailed notes while you were deployed, and did you always enjoy writing?
1: I, I did. I was an English major in college, uh, so I've always been a reader, you know, from as far back as I can remember, um, and I've always enjoyed writing, and I'd like to think that I've always been reasonably good at it. Um, I, d- I didn't take detailed notes with the objective of, of ever, you know, publishing anything based on my experience, but I did... Um, you know, send pretty long, you know, emails home to to family and friends Um, almost, you know, maybe subconsciously as a bit of a diary or, you know, something to preserve these memories. Mm -hmm. Um, So it wasn't like I was sitting down with the intention of of writing about my experience, but I did try to capture some of these events because I knew that they were important and I didn't want to forget them.
0: But I, I have read some of your articles and of course your book and I wanted to ask you about the one where you talk about paid patriotism. Was that written specifically uh, for the Washington Post, or did they just pick it up? Did you write it for someone else?
1: No, that was for the Post. I I kind of had this agreement with them where, um, you know, I'm not, I'm not on their staff, but I had like a freelance relationship with them where I can pitch them stories, and then they're free to, you know, take them or leave them. Uh, and so that was one that that I I pitched uh, to them.
0: Yeah, so will you talk about that one and what it was about and, you know, what, why you started thinking about it?
1: Um. Yeah, I mean, that one, it, it it was a few years ago, so unfortunately it's not completely fresh in my mind, and I don't want to confuse it with the, you know, the anthem protest issue because that was not what it was about. This was, you know, a few years before that whole situation developed. Um, and from what I can recall, um, I was just trying to basically make the argument that, uh, our society had become a little bit too enamored with 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 symbolic, but but kind of superficial actions. Um, you know, uh, like you see it, at some of these sporting events. Um, there was a book called Billy Lynn's Long Halftime Walk that is an entire book kind of based on that premise, as opposed to citizens actually being engaged in uh, our foreign policy decisions and and knowing about. Uh, these wars that we're in and why we're in them or, or maybe why we shouldn't be in them and just being more actively engaged as opposed to uh, essentially being content to, you know, clap for a few minutes on, 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 Sunday afternoon, but then just go back to your life and forget all about the troops and forget all about veterans. Um, so I think that's what I was trying to get at.
0: Yeah. you had, And you had talked about how, I guess the department of defense had paid, I don't know if it was teams or leagues or someone to maybe ha- have some of these happy reunions
1: yeah yeah i mean that they're uh they i i know for a fact that that they had paid the nfl in some instances you know money to sponsor some of these um uh you know pregame. uh ceremonies which which seemed to me pretty ridiculous, you know here you have a league that's full of millionaires and billionaires <laughs> why should tax money be encouraging them to do something patriotic? you know they should be doing that on their own um, and then the reunions you know was something where um, and, and I, I wanted to be sensitive about it because there's something that's very touching and moving about those reunions and I don't want to downplay that um, but i I just felt that they sometimes presented the uh, a misleading image of of what these wars uh, result in, you know, because, yes, there are some really beautiful reunions um, where, you know, a a husband, you know, gets back and surprises his wife or proposes or uh, but for every one of those, there's some very heartbreaking things that happen too and, you know, I just wanted to to make sure that that didn't kind of get lost in in all the hoopla.
0: Yeah, because you were talking about a you gave a specific example of a guy reunited with his wife and
1: and and I guess
0: it was a genuine, you know, reuniting situation. I, mean, I guess that's the first time they had seen each other.
1: Uh-huh. And everybody
0: cheers for a few minutes or a few seconds and then, you know, it's forgotten and they go on about the game and about about drinking and eating and but you said, you know, what about if you followed some of these casual notification officers mm-hmm. to you know, through this nice all American home, a flag waving yeah. across a manicured lawn and then to see the mother faint when she gets the news. Off her son,
1: mm-hmm. and and I know. I mean, this 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 is something that that must you know touch close to home for for you and and with your with your brother's loss and his sacrifice and 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 that really was my my point. Which is, I have nothing against patriotism, and I think these. I think it's a great thing that we, that we do honor our troops as as you know as much as we can, whether it's at sporting events or anywhere else. What I was trying to say though is that that shouldn't be the end of it. you know we shouldn't go home you know or pick up our hot dog, drink our beer and and forget about them for the next week or the next year. It should be something that is is a more prominent part of, of people's lives and, and to be a citizen in our country, I think it's it's imperative that, that you do know what soldiers are doing abroad. Uh, in the name of our country, and that you weigh in on it, whether you know in favor of it or, or if you think that they're being misused in some instances, but but just to be engaged, and the engagement should go further than you know ten minutes every Sunday afternoon. Yeah,
0: well, you may not know, but uh, you know, Lifetime had a a series called Coming Home.
1: Mm-hmm. Did, I
0: think they did two seasons, and you know that had the kind of the forced planned out reunions and you know they try to get all creative and uh with uh-huh. and, and and i don't know if you knew this but but our family was in one of those in season one.
1: Oh wow i didn't know that
0: and, and they featured it was about mark and um he was one of the a stories of course it was a different had to be a different format
1: uh-huh. and
0: um you know, anyway the the marine pilot who pitched it to him the guys kept saying no 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 we can't do it it's against our format well, he finally got him. I guess they finally listened to him, and they and they did it. And I guess that was the well, it was the only episode that dealt with a death
1: uh-huh.
0: uh, versus a happier reunion. So there was a reunion between our family and this pilot who was providing close air support for Mark,
1: uh-huh. and he was
0: killed. But different kind of reunion. Uh-huh. So yeah, I mean, uh-huh. yeah, we saw some of the 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 forced reunions, but you know, it was it was. I think it was good to see, but then once you got season two in there, it's like, okay, you know, it's maybe enough now.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, let's go on to your book. Um, we cause we're, we're run, running out of time and I, and, uh, the prisoner in his palace about Saddam Hussein, we, we talk about the, you know, really, I'm, I'm more curious why you wrote the book and how you were introduced or found out about the 12, you know, sure, quote, sure. the 12.
1: Yeah. So, um, I was introduced to it doing research for uh, a New York Times reporter at the time. And this is, you know, over 10 years ago. Um, And he had given me a number of uh, oral history interviews, which are interviews that the Army does with soldiers who took place or took uh, part in uh, historical events. And, you know, I got dozens of these uh, uh, and most of them weren't particularly noteworthy. But this one group of them jumped out at me um, as – just really remarkable, and they were interviews that were done with the soldiers who had guarded Saddam, and guarded's not even really the right word, I mean, they basically lived alongside him and cared for him in the months prior to his execution, and they discussed the relationships that developed over the course of this time, Um, and so ever since that moment, um, I thought to myself, you know, this is something that has got to be written about, I encouraged the, the guy I was working for to, to write about it in his book, but his book kind of had a different focus. And so he either wasn't interested in it or wasn't able to. Um, and so in the back of my mind, I thought to myself, this is a story that just has got to be written or it'll be lost forever. Um, fast forward a few years, I'm, work, I'm working at the Pentagon or actually more than a few years, probably like, you know, five five or so years. I went to grad school, then I went to work at the Pentagon. And I, w- I was still single at, at that time. And I thought to myself, you know what, if I don't take the plunge now, I'm, I, you know, my life's not going to get any simpler in the future. Um, and so uh, let's take a leap and, and and write this thing. So I quit my job and uh, I approached uh, some people I knew in the publishing world and I asked them, you know, do you think this is something that has legs? Is this a story people will be interested in? And, you know, fortunately for me, the answer was, uh, was yes.
0: And there was so much about this book that just really – just intrigued me. I mean, well, first of all, I've been thinking about what am I going to even title this episode with you, Will? <laughs> I mean, because, I mean, Saddam was a germaphobe, we learned. Uh huh. You know, I had no clue. <laughs> uh You know, and he, and these guys, they got pretty close with him.
1: Yeah, I mean, that, that really is, is what was so remarkable about this. And, and I don't see the book really as, you know, um, a book, even necessarily about the Iraq War, it's certainly not a biography of Saddam. I see it as a, as like a psychological exploration of, of I mean, I don't want to sound too uh, over the top or, or melodramatic, but uh, you know what it is to be human, you know, and and and, and how humans, uh, you know, kind of the mystery of, of human nature, and and how can it be that these young soldiers, you know, many of whom were just out of basic training, they weren't special operators, they weren't CIA. Uh, operatives. They were just, you know, kids. I think one of them was 18 years old. He'd been in basic training six months prior, and here he is sitting across from the world's most wanted dictator, um, who had, you know, the blood of, of thousands of innocents on his hands. And and I don't overlook that in the book. I I I, mm-hmm. I make it quite clear that that Saddam was guilty of horrendous crimes, but I also try to bring him to life as, as a complicated human being who did have no shortage of of charm. And who you know, despite themselves, a number of these soldiers actually began to, to kind of like.
0: Yeah, I mean it. Uh, you know, and I and I would I don't I want to make it clear too uh, with the listeners is because I, I I was reading some reviews on the book and uh-huh. the guy, when you know when of course who, I don't know how many said this but I, I read it <laughs> once. He's like, you know, uh, you 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 praise Saddam. Basically, he was said you were talking you were giving him too much credit, positive credit, and. It's not no way. In no way, did you? I mean, you made it clear that this guy was evil mm-hmm. and his sons were evil. I mean, it, it's just it's crazy. And then uh, Chemical Ali was there in prison, too, at least for a time. Mm-hmm. Well, well, and they were I guess they were guarding him as well. Is that right? The,
1: he was held uh, nearby. But the, the the portion of the book that I focus on, it was just Saddam and these soldiers. Um, and and I, yeah, I do want to highlight uh, because you brought up a good point, you know, that there hasn't been a lot of negative feedback but but if there is a criticism that I've heard a few times and I think oftentimes the criticism comes from people who haven't actually even read the book. They just kind That's of right. think, think that they understand the book. But you know that it's that it paints too, you know, sympathetic a portrait of Saddam. And I actually mentioned that I was talking to one of the soldiers after the fact and I think he had read the same review um and he was furious because he said, Listen, that makes us sound bad too and he's like if you know if they have a problem with the way Saddam is depicted that's not you the writer this isn't a novel you didn't invent that that character he's like if they have a problem with it they have a problem with reality because all you did was it was explain what really happened you know so so if there's a critique it shouldn't be a critique of the book it's a critique of of just of of life you know so yeah. i think it's important that that you highlight that and i think it's also important to to recognize that you know these soldiers even though they came to enjoy his company they kind of knew they knew he was guilty and they knew that he pretty much deserved to die um but it didn't make it any easier for him and and i think that gets at the fact that this mission was was unique you know it's one thing to to engage in kind of conventional combat where you shoot at a target that's 200 meters away it's probably someone you've never seen before you're never going to see him again and i'm not that's not i'm not suggesting that's easy but it's a whole different situation to live with someone every day to watch them bathe, to watch them pray, to watch them eat, to talk to them, to learn about their family, to joke with them, and then play a role in that death. Um, it, it's, a, it's a whole different mission psychologically, which is, which is I think, why it was tough on these guys, even though they knew he was a bad guy.
0: Yeah, I mean, they're sitting here talking about their families with him. He's asking them about their, their families, and he's talking about his sons. Uh-huh. And uh you know and, and there's one part point in the book where you kind of make the point it's like uh, did his, his, did Saddam was he just delirious did he understand how evil his sons were or did he just maybe he just wasn't you know he just didn't want to talk about them that way but um yeah I mean they 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 got to know each other pretty well.
1: Yeah and you know another question that the book raises and and I don't answer it you know I kind of leave it to the reader to to connect the dots and I think that there are a number of Of valid answers but it raises the question to what extent was this just a big you know manipulation was was Saddam essentially just a sociopath who was using these guys to get you know a better life in prison you know um, in in reality he really wasn't that great so if that was his goal you know it's arguable how successful it was but you know you could say this was just an effort to manipulate and it wasn't sincere or you could say that no there was the a very peculiar and improbable genuine relationship that developed between these these guys or you know a third option would be it's a little of each you know maybe he started out with the intention of of uh you know seducing them and manipulating them and then he kind of over time grew to like them and they grew to you know enjoy his company so i don't think we'll ever know the answer to that question and i don't I intentionally don't try to answer it. I just try to tell the story. And I think a smart reader can could emerge from the book with any of those three uh, conclusions and be justified in, in doing so.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's funny how he had these outbursts sometimes in court uh-huh. and, you know, going off on the Americans. And then, you know, <laughs> then yeah. he's back, back in the back and he's just, you know, chatting up with them like he loves them.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's one episode where he's screaming, you know, death to America, and he's waving and shouting in the courtroom. And then he gets in the elevator with the soldier, and he's like, hey, don't listen to that. He's like, I just had to do, you know, it's just for, it's, it's theater. He's like, you, you guys know I love you, you know. So he could turn it on and off, you know, uh, you know, uh, relatively easily.
0: Yeah. And, you know, some of these guys are driving around Baghdad yeah, not looking for cigars for Saddam. And you know, and they were, th- and weren't they were, saying to themselves, like, "Wow, if if pe- if my friends and family only knew what I'm doing at this very moment," yeah, and and even the people that they're passing, like, even if they see other U.S. military around or coalition forces, and you know, those people had no clue either what they were doing.
1: Yeah, I mean, they were sworn to secrecy uh, for security reasons. You know, they couldn't be telling other Americans, and and they couldn't get on the phone and and tell their loved ones back home. And you can imagine how tough that would be. You know, for at least myself, like if I was sitting across from Saddam Hussein, I would want to tell someone about it. And, yeah. and, and and they were and they were basically they'd have to just invent a cover story. And, you know, their parents or their girlfriend, they'd say, oh, yeah, you know, we're pulling guard duty. We sit in a guard tower all day. It's pretty boring. You know, when in reality, they were spending, tw- you know, 12 hours a day across from, you know, the most wanted villain in, in you know, in, in 50 years.
0: Yes, yeah, So what, They also couldn't write about it. They couldn't keep a journal,
1: right? Yeah. True. Yeah. They couldn't keep a journal. They couldn't email about it. They couldn't call about it. Um, and, and I think that was tough on them, you know, because it, you know, you 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 take into consideration that they're doing this very psychologically demanding mission, and then there's no one they can tell about it, you know, except each other, um, which which I think just compounded the the the, the challenge of the whole situation.
0: Well, there's two things I wanted to point out in the book before we wrap up, Will, or, or two things that stood out to uh-huh. me. One of them was um, Saddam was telling one of the guards, I forgot which one, I don't know if it's Hutch or who, but how he had gotten mad one time with Uday and like set his expensive cars on fire.
1: Uh-huh. And,
0: and, and the the background is, I guess Uday and Saddam's brother had gotten in an argument over some, you know, these guys are brutal. Yeah. I mean, and the book has some graphic scenes in it.
1: Uh huh.
0: And, uh, they, I guess, they were, had argued. Were arguing over a girl, and then Uday gets mad, starts shooting in a crowd. He, I think he killed some people. He shot bro, Saddam's brother in the leg, and is that what happened? And then Saddam, he's furious, and so he sets his cars on fire.
1: Yeah, I mean, you you can't make. I mean, this stuff is like right <laughs> out of the movie Scarface, you know, or Goodfellas, or you know, Sopranos. You, you, you name it. I mean, the I don't know if you're familiar with the movie Scarface but that that final scene where you know Tony Montana's in that in his mansion and the all the the enemies start climbing over the fence and there's this just this completely over-the-top shootout I mean that's the kind of stuff that was happening in Baghdad under Saddam normally I mean there were there was another scene in the book where um, his sons-in-law come back to uh, Baghdad from Jordan where they had defected um, with his daughters and he had, you know, felt like he had to punish them for their betrayal. And so there's this shootout that lasts like 12 hours right downtown, you know, thousands of rounds of ammunition, RPGs, you know, automatic weapons. Um, And I mean, it's the kind of stuff if you saw it in a movie, you would never believe it. But in this sort of nightmare world uh, that he presided over, it was, you know, not uncommon. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, He had told his
0: sons-in-law that he said, do you think I could really kill the... the the yep. father of my grandchildren.
1: <laughs> yep, and they last and the Jordanians that they were with warned them. They 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 said, "Listen, if you guys go back to Iraq, you're not going to make it a week." And they were right. And they, I think the Jordanians actually took bets uh, on how many days it would be before they were killed, and it was like two, I think. Is.
0: <laughs> yeah, because he was basically they were met at the border, weren't they coming back?
1: Yep, yep they 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 had they had fled to Jordan. While they were in Jordan, they were debriefed by, you know, intelligence agencies from around the world, including the CIA. Saddam knew this. Saddam knew that he was talking. They were talking to to these uh, Westerners. And uh, so the Jordanians said, listen, you know, if you guys go back, he will not forgive you. Um, For whatever delusional reason, they they proceeded to go back. They were met by helicopters at the Iraqi Jordanian border. Um, it was another one of these. I mean, it's it's a scene like right out of one of those movies uh, where I think Uday got off the helicopter with a big cigar in his mouth. They put the, the Saddam's daughters in one helicopter and they put the, the sons-in-law in the other. And when the Jordanians saw that, they said, well, I wouldn't want to be in that. I definitely wouldn't yeah. want to be in that one helicopter because we know that's not going to end well. And his daughter still loved him. And... Yeah. I mean, you can't make that up either. He kills her husband and she was – you know loyal to him till the end and was responsible for putting together care packages to send him when he was in prison.
0: Yeah. You know, the last thing is would you will you elaborate on the some of the guys, the Americans, the 12, they felt some guilt, you know, after Saddam was was hanged and and his body was I guess brought out in public and some people started um I don't know. You know, they were mutilating it or or you know, beating on him, I guess, kicking him and whatever they were doing and some of the the 12 were kind of felt guilty.
1: Yeah, and it, it wasn't guilt over what they were doing. It was it was just they felt bad about what was happening. And again, this this wasn't that you know, they didn't feel bad that he had been executed. I think most of them mm-hmm. recognized that that was deserved, but they had been they had basically spent the last 4 months trying to do this with with a sense of dignity and professionalism you know and their whole mission was to make sure that that he got through his days you know securely and safely and so that this trial could proceed and you know justice could could occur and they did that and and there was a recognition you know you, you can't even let this guy trip in the shower and get a black eye because if we go on tv around the world and saddam is in court with a black eye everyone's going to assume that the americans abused him so it was a Priority of theirs to to, to to conduct themselves, you know, in a, in a in a professional manner and to to do this this mission, uh, uh, you know, as responsibly as possible. And and you know, what bothered them was the minute that they turned him over to the Iraqis. Everything went to hell. You know, the, exec- the execution itself was a mess. You can watch it on YouTube. You know, it looks like just an undisciplined mob. Saddam looks like the most dignified guy there, which is, you know, unfortunate. Mm-hmm. Um, and then after it happens, you know, the body is is is, is sort of desecrated, and it, it and it's just a wild, frenzied celebration. And the, and they thought to themselves, you know, this is exactly what we came here to fix. You know, the, we we wanted something better for this society, and it's all going to hell right before our eyes so that that's what they had a tough time dealing with
0: yeah yeah thanks for for explaining that and, and one guy one of the Americans got a pretty cool gift from Saddam right before he was executed
1: <clears throat> yeah I felt bad like i I still am you know a little nervous about revealing that because I don't want to get him in, in trouble and and uh Uh, But yeah, it was the the night of the execution, and they were in there and and had given him word that he needs to get ready to to go to the gallows. And so he was gathering his his belongings and and making his last preparations, and he pulled over one of the guards and uh, literally grabbed him by the arm and took his watch off, a very expensive foreign watch, and put it on this guy's arm and just said, I want you to have this uh, because I'm thankful for how you've treated me. And the soldier didn't initially want to take it because he knew there's probably some army rule against that. But at the same time, uh, you know, it was a pretty stressful time, and he just didn't want to derail this (laughs) this mission that they were on. Uh, So he said, you know what? I'll just it's not the time to put up a fight. I'll deal with it later. So he 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 took the watch. Uh, It's a a pretty remarkable. I I putting myself in Saddam's shoes, I can't imagine having soldiers bringing me to my execution and then giving them a gift before they do it. It's pretty remarkable. Mm.
0: Will, in closing, what else would you like to say either about your book or anything else or, you know, upcoming book or you know, projects?
1: Um, well, I, I, I'm right now working with my editor to, to, uh, identify a topic for the second one i think we have a few promising candidates in the in the next month or two uh hopefully we'll, we'll arrive at one uh so it's a little premature now to give you any more on that but hopefully there i will have some more information here in the not too distant future
0: so you're saying it's going to be a non-fiction
1: it will be nonfiction. yeah uh, i don't know if it's going to be military related or if it's going to be something here you know in america um uh, but uh but yeah, I'm gonna at least try to use the same kind of writing style that I, I used in this one and 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 use some of the same storytelling uh, techniques. Um, but no, that's it. And you know, I just wanted to thank you for for having me and and obviously thank you know your family for for your sacrifices which go beyond anything that that I've done. So I'm um, you know, I'm humbled to to, to talk to you.
0: Well, I really appreciate you being on. And, and by the way, uh, the book is so easy to read. I love the short chapters. That's very important to me. Mm-hmm. And and kind of kind of goes back and forth as well. So it's a great read. The Prisoner in His Palace. I'll have links to it. Awesome. And um, I'm guessing, or is there a a preferred location that you like to send people to, or just anywhere that you know you get books?
1: Um, I mean, I'm always a big fan of supporting local bookstores, but at the same time, the unfortunate reality is that you can usually get it on Amazon for about $10 cheaper than at a bookstore. <laughs> so, you know, if you have a nice bookstore in your town, by all means, um, you know, support them. But uh, if you just want to get it for a few less dollars, I'd say, you know, go, go to Amazon.
0: <laughs> okay, great. Do you ever come down to the southeast? Uh, every once
1: in a while. Yeah, yeah. Okay.
0: Well, yeah. Are you through doing your you know book tours, are or you, are you still – Doing a little bit of that across the country.
1: No, we're done. Um, I, I, I well, no, I shouldn't say that. We may have. There's going to be one or two events here in the not too distant future, but for the most part, most of that's finished. There's actually an article that I'll refer you to. You might want to take a look at the the most recent event I had was at uh, San Quentin Prison of all places, and I spoke to some prisoners there about my book, and it was a pretty amazing experience. So uh, that was in Newsweek, and you can find it online. But uh, that, when it comes to book tours, that that one kind of blew me away.
0: Good, I'll find that and put it in the show notes. If I can't find it, I'll, I'll ask you, but okay. I'm sure I'll be able to, to locate that pretty easy tonight. Okay. Well, thank you. I've really enjoyed this, Will, and I, I, I really enjoyed your book, and also appreciate you serving you know, and just, just man, doing what you did. That's a, you know, a great example, and you're, you're a great patriot, And so so thank you, sir.
1: No, thank you. And, I mean, honestly, compared to – I've seen some of the other folks you've had on, and, and what I did you know, is – uh pales in comparison to to a lot of them. So I'm I'm humbled to be on the show but I'm I'm glad uh, to talk to you and I enjoyed it. Same here.